This is the Off Mic Podcast, a radio show about radio life. Here's your host, Drew Dalby. My name is uh, Alan Cross. I am a broadcaster, a music journalist, a writer, a consultant, a new media person, a professional music geek. That's about the best thing I can come up with. You don't get all of that in your introduction without having to start somewhere. So where did the idea of radio begin for you? My grandmother gave me a, uh, a transistor radio for my sixth birthday. I didn't ask for it. My parents didn't suggest it. It just showed up. And I was growing up in a small town north of Winnipeg, uh, a million miles from, from nowhere. And we had three TV stations, one of which was in French. And uh, I had no idea that anything existed beyond the borders of this town. Yes, I would hear the radio when it was on in the kitchen, but I would never have an opportunity to actually be the person to choose the radio station. But when I got this radio, I was all of a sudden in charge of the entertainment and information and news that I could get, uh, and music that I could get from all over the place. Of course, you know, you know, living in Saskatchewan, it gets really cold in Manitoba, and in the wintertime, you can get AM radio stations flooding in from south of the border, and that's exactly what I what I discovered. And all of a sudden, I realized that the world was big, and that there were things beyond what was going on in my small town. So uh, I decided at a fairly early age that I wanted to be part of these, of this this community of voices that came out of the out of space and delivered all this music news and information entertainment to people everywhere. Now, I know it was at a young age that you got this first radio, but do you remember any of the names, any of the stations that you used to really get into? started with uh, the stations of Winnipeg, obviously. So there were three AM top 40 stations at the time. There was CKY, there was CKRC, and CFRW. And like a lot of people back then, you identified yourself to the world by which of the AM stations you uh, allied yourself with. So I, for whatever reason, became a CFRW person. But then at night, I would listen to WLS in Chicago. I would listen to KOA in Denver. I'd listen to WSW out of Cincinnati. Uh, There were stations from places like Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, KSTP from Minneapolis, St. Paul. I don't remember all those people, the people that I listened to back then, but until I left Manitoba in 1986, I would still do this. In fact, there would be some nights after our radio shift, uh, me and a buddy would uh, drive out into the countryside away from the city and away from all the interference and go around with the car radio to see exactly how what, what radio stations we could get. And occasionally what would happen is that a, a station on a Sunday night or a Saturday night would uh, go dark for transmitter repairs and uh, all of a sudden that frequency would be open. And then I remember there was one night we managed to pick up a station from uh, Ciudad Juarez in, in Mexico. They were, <laughs> they were running a 250,000 watt AM radio station. We got to, we picked it up one night. Wow, that's incredible, man, to see that the signal could actually carry that far. Well, it was that cold and the station <laughs> was that powerful. <laughs> so now you've got it in your head that radio is something that intrigues you, that you might want to be part of. Where do you take it from there? Well, what I wanted to do is become a journalist. I didn't want to become a long-haired, dope-smoking rock and roll radio DJ. I didn't think that was a very respective, respectable uh, career. So I went to uh, university thinking that I should take all the requisite courses to be a journalist, an anchor, uh, a foreign correspondent, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I worked at the University of Winnipeg, which was... Uh, 
at a station called CKUW, and at the time it was a closed-circuit radio station, so it broadcast to exactly one hallway and one cafeteria. <laughs> but it gave me the opportunity to at least speak into a mic for the first time. I did that for a couple of years. Then there was a radio station that opened nearby. Uh, a, a guy from the CBC had applied for a beautiful music, an elevator music radio station. And he got he got the license, and I bothered him until he, he hired me. And I ended up doing weekends. Now, it was a very small operation that did, in fact, go into receivership. Uh, but I got to do a bunch of things. I got to read news. I got to read sports and weather. I got to play records. But I really was still thinking about going into into journalism seriously. When I got out of university, I got a job at CJRL, which was a uh, AM radio station, a 1,000-watt radio station in Kenora, Ontario. And the guy who hired me said, look, the music director is going to quit. When he quits, or sorry, the news director is going to quit. And when he quits, you can have his job. So, okay, fine. Until that time, though, you have to play records and do all the other stuff. Not a problem. Happy to help. So he ended up quitting, and I ended up getting promoted into the news position. And I did it for 23 days, and I hated every single second of it. <laughs> it was it was just the most discouraging time because I had spent my entire life thinking I was going to be this important radio journalist. And when I finally got to do it, I discovered that I hated it. Not just a little bit, but a lot. What was it about the, the position that didn't live up to the fantasy that you'd set up? Well, maybe it was because it was in Kenora, and I would have to, you know, having to cover, you know, the cop stories and the city council stories and all the, the, the really boring stuff or stuff that I found to be very boring. I didn't like the hours. Um, basically, what involved is, is me um, coming in to do all the, you know, the morning show. Uh, staying, sticking around until about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and then making sure that there was plenty of music, uh, plenty of news for the afternoon guys to read at 4, 5, and 6. So uh, it was it was awful, and I hated it. I just didn't like the deadlines. I didn't like the pressure. I didn't like anything. So, fine. Uh, fortunately, though, earlier, before I got this job, I managed to send a demo tape to a pretty cool little rock station in Brandon, and uh, they suddenly needed somebody. And I they said, would you, would you be interested? And they said, absolutely. And um, I left Kenora so fast that uh, my landlord actually sent the sheriff after me for not paying the rent. <laughs> How did that turn out? Uh, well, I eventually paid it, um, and I never looked back. I think I've been to Kenora twice since then, and only under duress. <laughs> you try and schedule things just outside if you have to? Well, my uncle has a cottage just outside of Kenora, so I have to be very careful that... Uh, you know, when I go into town, I'm probably not very welcome. So uh, before you got the news director job, you were doing some of the, you were spinning records. You'd done it a couple times now. When you got offered this job, was it more of a, just, I need to be out of this news director, I need to be out of Kenora, or was there actually some throwback to being like, you know what, I really liked when I was doing this? No, it, well, I guess, because what happened was, um, I guess what happened was, I realized that it wasn't so bad being a long-haired, goofy rock and roll DJ. It was actually kind of fun. And then after I started getting a couple of paychecks for it, it was like, oh, okay, maybe I don't have to grow up. And basically, 
I rested my development, and that's pretty much where I am today. (laughs) It just carried on all through the years. So when you get to Brandon and you sit down and you start doing these on-air shifts, did you need a lot of help in in sort of figuring out your show? Because up to that point, all, all of your thought process had been to go into this news director thing. Did you need guidance to be a a, a long-haired, on-air rock and roll guy? Absolutely. I I tell people who want to get into this business that they don't know who they are in the air for five years. So you you have to, it's it's, it's trial and error. And the only way that you're going to get better at it is to to practice. And fortunately, I was able to practice five and six hours a day, five days a week. So that was pretty cool. And, And what we would do back then is we would spend an awful lot of time pouring over uh, air checks of big market announcers, trying to figure out exactly you know why we like them, what was so cool about them, um, what we wanted to steal from them, you know all that kind of stuff. And uh, we all it was an interesting community situation because we all wanted to help each other get better so we could get out of this small town and get onto a major market. And uh, the friends that I made in Brandon, I, I'm still friends with today. As a matter of fact, who were some of the major market guys that you were air checking, stealing from? Well, there were uh, anybody that we could find on one of these uh, air check tapes, and that often would be, you know, like a Larry Lujak out of Chicago. Uh, it would be Jonathan Brandemeyer again out of Chicago because these were stations that we could pick up. Uh, we would uh, listen to old air checks of guys like Charlie Tuna from Los Angeles, some of the old KHJ air checks from, from the either the early 70s or the late 60s. Uh, we would listen to WBZ in Boston when it was still a top 40 AM radio station. And then we would, you know, go into Winnipeg and then we would critique all the announcers that were working in Winnipeg. We'd all find our favorites and hope that, uh, you know, we could one day work in Winnipeg because for all of us on the prairies, that was, that was the biggest city around. Uh, Regina was second, Saskatchewan, Saskatoon was third. Uh, then maybe Calgary or Edmonton, then oh, we're none of us are any good enough to work at Vancouver. I don't even think about Toronto. <laughs> so, so it was all trying to get to Winnipeg. And there's a guy that was working at City of Winnipeg named Bob McBride, uh, and he was the midday guy. And I thought he was very, very different from everybody else because he had sort of a cerebral approach to 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 being an FM jock. And uh, I, I liked the sense of humor. I liked how he took the music seriously. He didn't goof around with it. He wasn't, you know, one of these uh, party all the time people. Let's get wasted. Uh, he was actually a pretty. Uh, he, he was a knowledgeable rock and roll DJ. And I thought I could do that. I could be the knowledgeable type. I can't be the goofy type. That's not my personality. But I could certainly be, you know, this knowledgeable type. So I, I stole from him. And uh, other people like him, but he was he was a major influence. Now, I should ask, uh, right from you know that age of six with your first radio, because everybody knows you now as one of those guys with an encyclopedic knowledge of all things music. Was this something that you had developed from an early age, or is this something that you picked up when you realized that that was an avenue for radio? Well, when I was in school, I was ostracized and shunned as a nerd. So the only way that I managed to find myself enjoying any level of popularity was the guy being the music nerd. So I had the collection of records. I had the. I was always the first one to get the albums. I was always, you know, I was all. I was the go-to guy when it came to being the rock and roll freak, and that became part of my identity back then. And uh, I did receive a certain amount of affirmation for being that person. And when that's the only affirmation that you're getting, you uh, 
you sometime you you pursue it. So that's exactly what I did. I pursued this this idea of being the rock guy, uh, the music guy, and uh, again, I thought I really enjoyed it, and people seemed to enjoy getting it from me. It must have felt pretty cool to have grown up, and, and again, we all know what it's like to have that thing that people will pick on you for when you're younger, but now you're seeing this guy in Winnipeg doing what you want to do and doing it the way that sort of you'd been made fun of for doing things growing up. It must have been pretty cool to see, like, people love this guy. Yeah, there was hope. <laughs> there was actually room in this business for me. So maybe somehow that would become part of my persona and somebody would appreciate it and I would be able to continue to work in the business. So did you start then incorporating that sort of shtick into your Brandon show? Not really, because I didn't know what it was that he was doing. It, it took me a while to figure it out. I mean, I, I know exactly now. But back then, I, I didn't quite get it yet. So um, it was, um, my first thing was trying to be conversational. I, 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 needed, I, needed, I needed to figure out how to be conversational. And he was very conversational. So um, that's the first thing I worked at. Then when I got to uh, Winnipeg, I ended up moving to Q94 FM in Winnipeg, which was uh, an adult contemporary station. They had a, a midday program called the Memories of Rock. This is back in the old days when we had to do all this full-gram programming. And I found out that I really enjoyed doing that particular show because you'd have to talk about the records that you were playing and the history of the records you were playing. So that, that was, that was kind of cool. But then uh, when I finally moved to CFNY, which became The Edge, uh, everybody on staff was expected to be a music expert. And that was a very, very, very big baptism by fire. To just be thrown in there and be like, everybody expects you to know everything about everything, so go do it. Yeah, and the audience was unforgiving. They knew more about music than you did, and if they caught you in a, in a mistake or trying to pretend that you were uh, more than you were, they'd call you out on it, and man, your credibility was on the line every time you opened the microphone. And that's a, that's a whole different kind of pressure that I think now with... You know, with so many streaming options and uh, so many of these online music sources and things like that, that it's not really the same with radio anymore. You don't have to be the guy that knows every single thing. It's still a, an option. It can definitely be your gimmick. But I don't think that the listeners are as ruthless to try and call you out on it these days. Not to music people. If you're a talk radio person, absolutely. Oh, well, yeah, but, that's a whole different ballgame. They want to get you on everything. Yeah. Now, you know, as long as you don't, you know, pronounce ZZ Top, Tutu Top, you're, you're okay. <laughs> and I've heard that done, by the way. I was just going to say, please tell me you haven't done that one. No, I didn't do it, but I know it's been done. I heard it. <laughs> so let's talk about that progression. And now you're, you're in Toronto and you're fighting against the listeners to try and establish yourself. How long did it take you before you felt like you were really hitting a groove at uh, FNY? About two years. It really took about two years before I felt comfortable, before I realized that, yes, I understand this music. Yes, I know quite a bit about this music. Uh, you had to because every six, because we were picking our own tunes. And not only were we supposed to you know, pick proper tunes to take an audience through a, a, a day, a day part, we were also expected to do really cool mixes, you know, one song segue into another. And we, there, was, there was actually competition amongst the staff as to who could come up with the best series of mixes 
um, this is something we don't do today because everything is automated and you're not actually mixing records anymore. The computer is doing it. So uh, that and, um, you know, the staff will compete amongst themselves as to who knew the most about what. Um, we compete against the audience to see who knew the most about what. And, of course, there'd be new music coming in every single week that we would have to familiarize ourselves with very, very quickly lest we um, make a mistake. Now, I've. Uh, it's funny that you brought up that we don't do mixes anymore other than, you know, CHR, DJ mix kind of things uh, because everything's in automation. I've talked to a few people recently, and they lament the loss of that in radio, talking about, oh, the shows used to be so much better. Do you think that in 2015, in current radio, that a station could come up and start doing sort of those old school things, DJs picking the music, mixing live, even if you were to throw to automation for those voice track off-air hours, do you think that that's something that would add to a radio station, or do you think we're too far gone? I think we're too far down the road simply because when we do have an announcer, a live announcer on the air, we're expecting them to do other things as well as talk on the radio and mix records. We're expecting them to answer their email, uh, to answer texts, to make fa Facebook posts and website posts and answer Twitter. So there's, there's lots going on, uh, far more going on uh, off air than there ever used to be. So it would be, you would, you would have the, the potential for mistakes for playing music on the air would be way too high if you brought back live mixing in, in most cases, uh, which is too bad because I think a live mixing actually adds a certain element to the sound of the radio station. It's really hard to describe. It just feels more real and natural. But uh, given where radio has gone, I don't, I don't think it's it's coming back. Unless you have it like a special, you know, nighttime DJ mix show. That's another thing. Right. But for, for, for everyday regular radio, no. Too bad. A lot of stations uh, go by the the philosophy of you know song splitter song splitter song break splitter you know it's everything is very much regimented and broken apart. Do you think that maybe even just letting a song flow into the next song while it's not a live mix, do you think that maybe even that could recapture some of that that lost sound? Sure, it depends if you're in a diary market or in a PPM market. Right. If you're st still in a diary market, you need to hammer the call letters and the dial position home as often as you possibly can because diary markets re rely entirely on recall. If you're in a PPM market, like Toronto, for example, you don't have to hammer the call letters all the time because the meters are doing all the work. In fact, there are some stations uh, here in Toronto where they don't run station IDs or splitters or sweepers between every song simply because we think that, that if we reduce that, there will be less clutter and the radio station will sound better. So to answer your question, yes, under certain circumstances. Yeah, you bring up ratings back when you were at CFNY the first time, even around the two years where you say you really started to get it. How were your ratings back then? Uh, they were okay. Uh, the radio station as a whole was never meant to be a ratings powerhouse because it was playing this weird left-wing music. But uh, the station was powerful, uh, was, was profitable. And uh, it was profitable in large part to the fact that none of us were getting paid all that much. Like, I took a 25,000, no, I took a 25% pay cut to come from uh, Winnipeg to, to Toronto to, to from being a swing shift person to being an all night person and a Saturday morning and a Saturday morning person. So I went from work, working uh, five days a week to six days a week. Five of those days were all nights. One was Saturday morning 
and my salary went from twenty three thousand dollars to seventeen thousand five hundred. It seems like that's going in the wrong direction. Yeah, but I, I figured that this would be an opportunity that I wouldn't get again. Uh, I had heard of CFNY. I knew it was a, this, this this weird sort of left wing radio station. But when they offered me a job, I thought, okay, I'm not tied to anything here in Winnipeg. I, there was a girlfriend that I was trying desperately to break up with. <laughs> I, I I hated all my. Uh, I hated my boss. I hated the music I was playing. I just wanted something different. And that's what I got. It basically became your ability to, in essence, pay to be free of all of that. I did, yes. Um, It was an opportunity to escape. And in exchange for the escape, I would have to take a financial and lifestyle hit. And it was worth it. Earlier, you mentioned, like, as a kid on the prairies, you were looking to get to Winnipeg or maybe Regina or... Maybe in Edmonton, but Vancouver, Toronto, that's crazy talk. Now you are this prairie kid in Toronto. Was there a lifestyle change as well? Was that something you had to adjust to? At the time, uh, the city of Toronto had an apartment vacancy rate of less than point zero, uh, less than 0.5%. Rent was absolutely insane, and it chewed up about 60% of my paycheck. The city was big. It moved fast. Um it never seemed to sleep, and, and it, it mattered more what you said on the radio because important people were listening, whether they be record labels or promoters or shopkeepers or whatever it was. It was just a, a much more pressure-packed situation, and yeah, you had to, uh, we, we definitely had to, to work hard. So you're in there, you've established your show, you're, you're starting to get the hang of it. What comes next? Do you get out of the overnights? Do you get out of the Saturday morning show? Yeah, eventually there was a, a restructuring and I ended up doing middays. Did middays for a couple of years and then there was another restructuring and I ended up doing afternoons. And then there was another restructuring and an and a ownership change. And I was put on weekends um, and then assigned to do this, this program called The Ongoing History of New Music which I didn't want to do, but they said, you're either going to do it or you're going to find another job. So I did. That lasted uh, nine months before they put me back on afternoons, continuing to do this ongoing history of new music show. Uh, And I stayed back doing that until uh, 2001 when they called my bluff and made me a program director at Y95 in Hamilton. So that was the beginning of uh, a multi-year stretch in management. Now, when you say, what do you mean they called your bluff? Well, I said, listen, I'm, uh, I live out near Hamilton. I want to take my career to the next level. Uh, no, if you ever buy that radio station, you know, put me in charge. How bad could it be? <laughs> and how, how bad was it for the first bit? Uh, listen, that was like walking into the gates of hell. It was <laughs> so, I mean, it was so hard and crazy and... Uh, I mean, it was just a different world, and it was um, it was crazy. I'm glad I did it, though, um, because I was in Hamilton for three years, and then uh, they called me to be the program director at, uh, at The Edge, and um, I, I did that for a while, and that was five years of really interesting work. <laughs> and... and uh, you know, it, it turned out, here, here's the I was an okay program director. I was just okay. And I'm fully aware of that. And I'm cool with that. I am much better at uh, creating content and helping other people create content, not being a manager. What made you think, before you got the Hamilton job, when you when you went and told them, I want to go and run that station if you ever buy it, what, what made you think that that was something that you could do? 
Well, it was the traditional career trajectory. You were an announcer for a while, and then eventually you became a program director or a music director. So it was it's just what was done. That's how it worked. Now, when you were out in Hamilton, because you'd mentioned uh, the, the ongoing history of new music, did you continue to provide content for that show, or did you uh, oh, walk oh, away from oh. it at that time? No, no, I uh, continued to do it without a break. <laughs> now, I do want to talk about that show because, uh, for me, personally, that's the first time that I ever heard you was hearing that show. You said at first that you didn't want to do it. As somebody who was very into music and very into the history of these things, what was it that made you not want to do it in the first place? Because I, it was too much work. Ah. And, and remember, this is 1993, so there's no internet. Uh, nobody had been taking alternative music seriously. Uh, there were very few books on the subject. Uh, if you wanted to research it, you had to go through old dusty magazines if you could find them. You'd have to go through record company bios if you could find them. Uh, it, was, it was just too hard. <laughs> but I had no choice. I, I remember sitting down in my living room. I had just bought a house, and I'd just been married. And I was like, okay, well, it's either sink or swim. And I remember very vividly sitting down in January of 1993 with a yellow pad of paper in my hand and with a pen and thinking, okay, where do I begin? And it was pretty weird. Was this a show that was being done before you? Was there a previous host to it? I was assigned it. Uh, the station had flirted with several, it flirted with changing formats to country or something else. And when the new owners took over, they said, no, 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 there's this thing happening. It's kind of called grunge. There's this festival called Lollapalooza. There's these bands like Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden. And, you know, it sounds like, you know, this could be a thing. So we're going to stick with this particular music, which gives us an identity, keeps us in the same sort of legacy wheelhouse the station was in, although with a much more laser focus. But what we really need to do is educate our audience, and the new audience that we think they're going to get as a result of this music. Uh, we have to educate them as to where this music came from. Uh, and, that, and the way we'll do that is we'll have a, a, an hour show every week explaining the music that we play. They looked around the staff, and they found one guy, exactly one guy with a degree in history, me, and they said, you're doing it. I, 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 I don't want to do it. Yes, you are, because if you don't do it, you're fighting another kick. So that was it. Oh, and by the way, we're going to call it the Uncle History New Music. That's a stupid name. It doesn't matter. It's what we're calling it. <laughs> so uh, they basically uh, looked over my shoulder. Management looked over my shoulder for the first two episodes and then never said a thing afterwards. And I have just, uh, I'm going to start on Monday on episode 729. Jesus. Yeah. So, so you caught on with it, I guess. At some point, you became okay with it. Uh, at, some, at some point, I realized, okay, let's back up. Every radio person, whether they know it or not, has a best before date on their forehead. And, and at some point, somebody's going to look at that and look at you and say, hey, oh, pass your sell-by date. You're either too old or your stick is too stupid or you're out of fashion or you're being paid too much or whatever. Uh, and it's time for you to go. And you know what it's like in radio, you have to give all of yourself, your personality, your soul to the business, because if you don't, you come across as inauthentic, and if you come across as inauthentic, you won't be any good, and you won't be liked, and you won't have ratings, and you won't have a job. So I had to come up with something that would stay 
that would allow me to stay relevant to an audience that's basically under the age of 35, even though I was soon going to be over 35. And the way I figured it out was if I'm the music nerd, that's timeless. Everybody always wants to know something about music. So it will never go out of style. Knowledge is power. So I decided then and there that, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be the music guy, and that will keep me from sounding old in the ears of the listeners. And what the, <laughs> it actually worked. So I'm guessing 729 episodes ago, you didn't think that this would become an iconic program that young broadcasters would listen to and say, that's why I want to do this. Hell no. <laughs> Absolutely not. I did it under duress. I did it so I could keep paying my mortgage. <laughs> and I, I, it wasn't until about sometime in the late 90s, after I'd done a couple of hundred shows, that I realized that, wait a second, people are digging this. And they, they shouldn't because it doesn't follow the rules of radio. The host talks too much. The host never mentions the call letters of the radio station. And the host plays an awful lot of unfamiliar music. Those are three things that are death to radio. But for whatever reason, I'm getting away with it. And I kind of like that. <laughs> You're right. Like, if you were to bring in a consultant to talk specifically about your show without knowing of its success, there's no way a consultant would look at that and go, oh, yeah, no, this is great. This is exactly what we should be doing. I, you know, I've, and I've had those conversations. <laughs> you know, somebody will come in from, from outside the market and go, what is this? And we'll explain to them. So this is why are you doing? It? You don't have to do this. this. Is stupid. Yeah, but and eventually you win them over. Right. <laughs> you know, it, it, it happens, and it, it's interesting too because it, when you when I go to when I try to syndicate the show to other other stations across the country, I met with the same criticisms. Well, I mean, you're playing unfamiliar music. Uh, you're talking too much, and you know, blah 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 blah. Uh, and I see. Well, wait a second. You know, radio is about. Storytelling, intimate storytelling, doesn't matter what the music is, really, if you put it into context. If you wrap the music in a story that's going to make people so hooked that they will stay in their car in the driveway until the story is over, that's what you want. And a lot of that storytelling has been stripped out of radio over the past 20 years. And for whatever reason, people have seen fit to keep me in place because it seems to work. How many markets is Ongoing History in now? Let's say a dozen. So there are a dozen markets that are playing this show. It's very popular. I see online, Facebook, Twitter, people are constantly asking you how they can find it online because their local station doesn't play it. And you're, you're in these markets because of your storytelling. But like you said, it almost seems like for the rest of radio, they've, they've moved away from that. And do you think that... Do you think that radio will ever go back to it? Well, I think it needs to, uh, because if you if radio continues on the path that it's uh, it's 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 heading, uh, it's uh, Spotify with commercials, it's Spotify with interruptions. Right. So what you need, what radio needs to do, is stand up from the pack of all the streaming uh, uh, streaming services that are out there, and become more relevant to the listener. You can listen to a hundred thousand songs in a row on your Spotify playlist, but there is nobody there to tell you why any of those songs matter, where they came from, who the artist was. You may know the song, but you know nothing about the artist. And as a result, you have no emotional connection to the artist or anything beyond whether or not you like the song. And the problem, too, is that a lot of people, if you look at Spotify data, people, uh, a good 50% of people 
will skip to the next song before the song is played a minute. So there's nobody at the beginning of the song to tell you that, hang on, here's why you need to listen to the song all the way through. And if you listen for this and this and this, the song will have much more meaning to you. You don't get that from a playlist. You get that from an actual person who is going to tell you why this matters. Now, were these philosophies that you had when you were the program director at Y108 when you were at The Edge? Yes, absolutely, 100%. And did the higher-ups from you in, uh, it was Chorus at the time, I believe, still is Chorus. Yeah. Did they back you on these sort of things? Did you see change implemented to push these philosophies? They backed me when I got it right with announcers who could do it. This is a very hard thing to do. Being a storyteller is, is, is requires a tremendous amount of practice and experience. And when I could help announcers become better storytellers, uh, it worked and they left me alone. When they just were running off at the mouth, I got in trouble for it. So at what point does the run as the program director of The Edge come to an end? It comes to an end somewhere around 2008 when there was a new um, interactive division being started up and they wanted to know if I wanted to work there and I was pretty much ready to go out and try something else. So uh, we set up this, uh, this interactive division, worked on it for a while, uh, then it all collapsed and they fired me. <laughs> uh, not to my, no, sorry, they downsized. Uh, it, was, it, was, it wasn't uh, the performance thing. It was like, yeah, we're shuttering this whole thing. And uh, sorry about this, but you uh, you got to go. So what was, the, what was the goal of the interactive division before it got shuttered? Like, what kind of things were you guys looking to do with that? Same thing that we're trying to do now with radio is take uh, radio evolved from an AM, FM medium and turn it into something that could be enjoyed on the Internet. And, you know, in 2008, 2009, things were a whole lot different than they are today. I mean, when we started this whole thing, the iPhone wasn't even out. Google hadn't bought uh, hadn't bought uh, uh, YouTube yet, so there was just so much change and so much difficulty in wrapping our heads around what was going on. So much difficulty for our bosses in wrapping their heads around uh, what was going on. It was a good try. It just didn't work. Maybe just ahead it, of its time. It was very much ahead of its time. And in fact, it would probably still be ahead of its time today because there's so many regulatory things that are getting in the way of radio. But at the same time, the good news is is that, that our, our ministers now realize that, yeah, I mean, it's more imperative than ever that we, we get our act together when it comes to the Internet because uh, radio revenues are falling. Things are starting to change when it comes to uh, consumer behavior. So let's figure something out. Well, you said that it's the regulatory stuff, the the red tape that's out there. I mean, we talked about it uh, just a little while ago with the ongoing history of new music and how people wish they could just go online if it's not in their market and be able to find it in a podcast form or something along those lines. But there's just so much of that red tape out there that you you can't do it. You can't do it. It's impossible. Under the current copyright rules and streaming rules, you cannot do it. Well, I shouldn't say that. You could do it, but it would cost you millions of dollars. And uh, believe me, if we could do it, we would, but we can't. Trust us. We've tried. <laughs> and we're continuing to try. So we'll just, we'll just do our best until something comes along. Now, is this, is this a CRTC thing? Is this something that they have to move on, or does it also involve the labels and the, the record companies? It uh, involves uh, rights holders. It involves SOCAN, it involves record labels, it involves music publishers, it involves the Copyright Board, it involves the Canadian Music Reproduction Rights Association, it involves ReSound, it involves AVLA, all these people who have um, interests in the nature and distribution of recorded music. <laughs> it's, 
it's 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 a nightmare. And none of these people talk to each other, which is really frustrating because well, that would make it too easy. Oh, way too easy, way too easy. So it's there 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 is some urgency. There's um you know some conference discussions about it, uh, but we're still not there yet. Where do you see radio going in the next few years? I know what you've said radio has to do to to stay relevant. But where do you actually think radio is going based on the path that they're on, say, by the next five years, 2020? Well, I don't know. Uh, I think what's going to happen, and there's a lot of things that are wild card. I mean, this whole idea about streaming music services, you know, how does radio become more interactive? What do we do about the car and the dashboard? What do we do about smartphones? There's, there's a, a, a lot of stuff that needs to be answered. But we can't, and as, hard, as much as we want to try and answer it today, we can't because things keep changing on us. And, um, wow, it's the, the best you can do. See, you know, you see how fast technology moves. Technology moves at the speed of light. And the rest of the world can't move that fast. So the moment we see something, oh, this is a cool new shiny thing, by the time we adopt it and get it uh, up and running, everybody's moved on. So it's people are, and the other thing is a lot of radio stations are owned by big companies who are, uh, publicly owned and what they want is return on investment and it's really tough to offer return on investment when you don't know what you're investing in and you have no idea when you're going to get you're going to see some return on it we'll come down to the last few questions that i ask everybody uh the first one and i feel like you you have so much story to tell and, and so much experience in the business what would your advice be to someone listening to this show who's going to radio school right now don't be afraid to move someplace Leave your comfort zone of wherever it is you grew up and go work someplace else. Treat it as an adventure. If you're not tied to a particular place by relationships, real estate, or debt, move. You will find that it'll change you as a human being and you will, you'll, you'll thank me for it five years from now. I know you've worked with a lot of uh, people either under your own uh, employ while you were a program director or whether it's when you're doing your consulting work. Who do you think out there right now that Canadian radio listeners should be listening to and Canadian broadcasters should be looking up to as role models? Here's what you need to do. It's everybody should have six virtual mentors and they don't have to be in Canada. They can be anywhere in the world because that's what the internet offers you. Find someone somewhere in the world that you really like. Then try to figure out why it is that you like this person. Analyze what they do. Figure out what you can steal from them and then incorporate that material and those uh, styles into whatever you're doing. Again, don't listen to just Canadian broadcasters because we have one way of doing radio. The British do it another way. The Americans do it another way. The people in Singapore do it another way. Find any English language radio that you can get and figure out what it is that they do and then advance the arts by incorporating their styles. I know you're, you're, you're talking about stylistically and, and person to person, but are there any people that you would point to and say, like, this person would make a great virtual mentor? Rush Limbaugh. And I'll tell you why. Don't listen to his politics. It's probably not going to agree with you. Listen to him as uh, his ability as a broadcaster. Somebody that can develop a monologue over 17 minutes without a guest, a phone call, or any other conversation. That is awesome. That is great broadcasting. You may not agree with what he says, but how he communicates, you can learn a lot. 
And the last thing that we always do uh, before I say thank you for coming on the show, it's been an absolute pleasure, honor to talk to you. Uh, but I always let my guest end by introducing a spin of the week, whichever song you'd like. And from the guy from the ongoing history of new music, I feel like he, people are wondering what song you're going to pick. Okay, here's the one I would pick simply because it's a radio song. It is Joy Division and Transmission. Dance to the radio.
Thanks for listening to the Off Mic Podcast. Follow the show online at Off Mic Podcast on Twitter or like the show on Facebook. If there's a guest you'd like to hear on the show, email offmicpodcast at gmail.com. The Off Mic Podcast is a part of the Dolby Radio Network.